Randall trying to hold on for a point. The corner comes in, headed down on the back post and wide. And that does it. Nashville SC remains unbeaten. Welcome to the Club and Country podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com. You may recognize that as Club and Country, the name of this podcast. The website to visit for Nashville SC coverage, and we believe we are the podcast to listen to especially today. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music and ESPN 94.9 for the radio highlight you heard of Nashville's thrilling scoreless draw against Rail Salt Lake for the second time in three matches. The boys in gold leave with a scoreless result, this time against RSL. And the first road test of the season is the boys in gold, Tim, really prevented any serious chances in the final third, but then failed to convert their own late opportunities after wrangling the front foot from RSL. So now five matches for this team and four draws. Yeah, it feels a lot like the USL days of, of Nashville SC, almost kind of a little cagey defensive match a bit. Neither team creates a ton, and it's just about who can nick a goal on one end or the other. And Saturday evening, the answer was nobody. If you wanted to defend Nashville's front foot ambitions, this was not the match to point to, certainly, as your example. But hopefully this episode will be the episode to point to as a great example of what we're all about. It may have been a forgettable match, but we've got a memorable show for you today. Alexi Lawless is joining us. Yes, the commentator from Fox, former U.S. men's national team star and MLS original. I don't know why I have to even give context around Alexi's name if you're listening to the show. You know who he is. He brought is. David Beckham to the league. He did bring David Beckham to the league as president of the L.A. Galaxy, also an executive with San Jose Earthquakes back in the day. He's in a rock band that's been going on since, what, college? Way back, I think. Uh, you're a music guy. You probably have more appreciation for uh, for that part of it than, uh, he, than I He do. opened for Hootie on a tour in like the late 90s. That's true. Incredible. He has stories to tell, and he tells a few to us, as well as getting into some deeper questions about the American game of soccer and how it can grow and how Nashville SC can play a role in that. So you will certainly not want to miss that conversation with Alexi, but we're not just about our guests here. We also have some good analysis to bring ourselves. In the early shout, we'll give you gold nuggets about Nashville SC's form after five matches and a couple of club records that were set Saturday despite the lack of scoring. And then we'll embrace consensus and have the debate about the road contest at RSL. Can Nashville SC have a successful season if it approaches its road contests similarly to the way it did in Salt Lake City. I think there's a debate to be had there about how bright Nashville needs to be away from home. The mailbag is once again filling up with your questions. Many of you reached out after the game, which is encouraging that even after a scoreless result that wasn't the most exciting match of the year, that many of you are curious about small and big picture items related to this team. So we'll get to as many of those as possible. And then we will go outside in and talk about TQL Stadium in Cincinnati. Looks beautiful. Cincy's back line looks about, well, the same. They look a little more ramshackle. Busy show for you. Let's go ahead and get into our early shout. Lacrosse towards Cadiz, headed down and saved on the line by Ochoa and cleared out for a corner kick. That was the moment. Ochoa produces the save and Nashville knocking on the door in the 79th minutes. It doesn't get that much more straightforward for Nashville. The best chance of the night sent forward Cadiz, to his credit, had to go over the back of Justin Glad didn't quite have enough to put pace on that ball and had to head it straight forward, and that's exactly where Ochoa was sitting. A match highlight courtesy of ESPN 94.9. John Freeman on the call. We'll have the call for you again this weekend as Nashville SC takes on Austin. But first, looking back at RSL, Tim, a scoreless draw. Not the most dynamic match that Nashville could possibly play. But you get the feeling they went on the road. And after about 30 minutes of RSL dominating the match, it felt like a scoreless draw was going to be the result that they needed. Yeah, definitely. And I think later in the match, you saw Gary Smith, through his tactics, kind of admit that he didn't think his team was going to get a point out of it. If they played it straight up, said, hey, let's make sure we get the draw. If we can nick a winner, we'll definitely do that. Um, you saw Alex Muil come off after getting a yellow card. Put on a, a slightly more offensively talented player in Luke Hawkinson. You do lose a little bit of defense there. So I get, he, it wasn't completely conceding the draw, but it was definitely a game where a shot was going to have to come out of, out of nowhere to win it for one team or the other, and it just didn't happen. Here's what the gaffer said after the match. I thought we took too long to get into our stride in the first period. A lot of simple and silly mistakes that were made in possession. 
I, I felt as though that improved in the second half and we started to make a little bit more of a game of it. But on a night where our quality, our creativity and some of the, the very good attacking play that we've seen at home wasn't going to be the difference, we needed to, you know, maybe go back to basics, roll our sleeves up and show the sort of discipline and determination that we've seen from this group on many, many occasions to earn a very, very good point. So, Tim, it's all well and good to take the point. I don't think there's any shame in that. I don't think either of us is going to look back and say that's a huge disappointment to go to a place that's tough to play at altitude. But should Nashville have expected or maybe hoped to come home with three points? I mean, this is a team that didn't make the playoffs last year. It's not a team that anybody's really picked to contend for MLS Cup. Is the point a good result, or do you find it to be maybe a bit on the disappointing side? Yeah, I think on the road, as you mentioned, at altitude, this club has never played at altitude before in the USL. They stayed in, in the Eastern Conference, and last year their Western Conference games didn't take them to the Rocky Mountains, so they haven't played in these sort of circumstances before. So I think it's fine. Um, you saw early in the second half that they were willing to play for a draw, and with about 20 minutes on the clock, they looked absolutely gassed. The altitude was definitely hitting them. I think getting out of there with a point, particularly because it was the first road game of the year, too. This club hadn't um, hit the road, hadn't had to go through a flight, hadn't had to stay in a hotel the night before a game. Combine all those circumstances together and still get a single point. Um, obviously, through the lens of what we've seen in the, in the past, in the, in the first three games, it's a little bit disappointing that they aren't racking up big-time points in the table. But there's nothing really to worry about. It. Yeah, I think it's a good result on one condition. And that condition is that they take steps to be brighter in future road matches. And not in every road match, by the way. They're not going to go down to Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta in a couple of weeks and try to boss the match with Joseph Martinez on the other side of the pitch. Uh, but I think, you know, when you look at what they did tactically in the match, RSL came out strong after an early Nashville corner kick. And the boys in gold, not only would they have been gassed under any circumstance, but at altitude and on the back foot for much of the match having to defend, it's no surprise that Gary Smith used his full complement of five subs in the contest. But I think your first road trip at altitude at a stadium with a, re a reputation, too, of being deceptively challenging. RSL's not a, a team that anybody's going to look at as being one of the stalwarts of Major League Soccer in any given year. They have six winning seasons in their 16-year history. But in those 16 years, they had a winning record at home in 13 of those seasons. And Gary Smith going in had never won a match there, 0-2-2, all with Colorado, of course. So at some point, Nashville's going to need to steal some road wins. I don't think that a point uh, is going to always suffice for them. But you know what? Even Columbus went winless away from home last year and ended up with a nice trophy at the end of the season. So I would call it a, certainly a solid building block, and I, I don't think it's anything that, that Nashville SC fans should lose any sleep over. They might have actually started to get that sleep before the match even ended. In the, in this <laughs> Those contest. final 20 minutes, a little bit of a nap there. Just a little bit. Uh, gold Nuggets for you from the contest. Nashville does remain one of three unbeaten teams in Major League Soccer, joining Seattle and Orlando, who both also won on the weekend. But the boys in gold have just the 11th most points per game. Well, last year, the final unbeaten teams, the final teams to lose a match, uh, in the regular season were Toronto, Columbus, and LAFC. So the MLS Cup champion, the Supporter Shield runner-up, and LA, which faded and finished seventh in the regular season. We all know what LAFC was all about. So that would be good company. A little more context for you. In the last five seasons, 11 teams have gone unbeaten in their first five matches. Nine of those teams have made the playoffs. But all of those teams had more points than Nashville does, as, of course, they just have one win in the five. So, Tim, is it a badge of honor? Is it something to be proud of to be unbeaten when you've just won once in your first five? I'm a cold, hard fact sort of guy. I worry less about kind of that undefeated label. So certainly we're going to bring it up as soon as it's not the case anymore this season. But it's not the label so much to me as what the point total says. I, I said similar things when Nashville was winless just a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, they don't have a win yet, but they have three points. Most teams that have played three games and are winless do not have three points. So it's about what you're getting done on the table. It's not a badge of honor to be undefeated at this point necessarily, but it's still a positive that you've gotten points from every outing. I think as you're laying a foundation for who you're going to be, and you can rely on your defense to be stingy in tight matches, and you're used to playing in those tight contests because you're always drawing, I think it's a good place to be. And I also think maybe just as importantly, the sentiment inside the club remains upbeat. It seems in conversation with folks around the club that, that there's a lot of pleasure being taken out of these first few results and that they like the foundation that's being built. So is it awesome to be undefeated at 1-0 and 4? No, but I think it can certainly be encouraging and, and can lay a foundation if they can build on that. 
Speaking of building, Nashville set two club records Saturday. For the first time in club history, they did not give up a shot on target. That, despite conceding a club record, 12 corner kicks. So in the second halves now of their first five matches, they've given up a total, Tim, of four shots on target. So even though RSL, in my view, was firmly on the front foot, Nashville was organized enough to prevent any serious chances. Yeah, and I'll even push back a little bit on the front foot narrative for RSL. Um, They had just a 12% possession advantage at the end of the game, despite the fact that Nashville, as we've previously mentioned, kind of packed it in for the final 20 minutes, trying to make sure they got out with the point. And Nashville actually had more possession going into the final third. Um, They had 136 attempted passes to RSL's 124. They did push a little bit late when Nashville was trying to hold for the draw and then totally ran out of gas. But that was specific to the circumstances of this game, too. I already talked about that. This was an extremely positive defensive performance. And then um, that corner kick record is is going to be a, a bugaboo for Dave Romney. One of the corners that RSL got was a phantom touch by Romney, went mm-hmm. out of bounds without touching him. And then that one actually immediately led to another corner within a minute. So unfortunately, um, you know, it might have been a situation where where that club record didn't need to be set necessarily and then maybe we'd be feeling even more different about the game because a lot of rsl's opportunities did come from those set pieces well that was our conversation in the radio booth too on that controversially one corner kick and the follow-up was man if rsl does earn the winner on this there's going to be all kinds of conversations so speaking from an objective standpoint even it would have been a shame to see nashville lose a match on a on a bad call like that now it comes to the front foot question I'm with you on the second half. You know, I think Nashville SC began to hold its own. They actually led in possession for a 15-minute stretch there in the second half. I think it was from the the middle part of that second half as they began to find their touch, and they put in subs when Freddie Juarez didn't put anybody in until after the 80th minute. But in the first 30 minutes, RSL had two-thirds of the ball, 72% of possession from minutes 16 to 30. And to me, that's a, a bit of a concerning sign for this club. If you do that early on the road to an Atlanta United or going up to a, to a Columbus eventually or a Philadelphia. All these are road trips they're going to have to take this year. I don't think you emerge unscathed. I think you're down 1-0 or 2-0. And, you know, for a first road match, for altitude, for trying to, to be in a more of a mid-block look than, uh, than high press, certainly, I understand it. But I think they're going to have to build on the foundation. They're going to have to be a little more expansive and apply a little more pressure, be more of a threat against better teams and i think you can warm up the bus at halftime if you're giving up 72 percent possession from minutes 16 to 30 against atlanta united in front of 40,000 fans that they're probably going to have in a couple weeks well the last time that nashville had fewer shots on target than this match was 10 games ago against chicago in a 1-1 draw it's the first time this year they failed to outshoot an opponent they were tied at 12 with rsl the last time nashville was outshot by an opponent Interestingly enough, Inter-Miami in the playoff match where Game State played a big role. Nashville's up 3-0 at halftime. It's happened just twice, though, in their last 10 matches as Nashville SC's begun to hold its own, at least when it comes to shot count. Yeah, you mentioned the Game State, and I think that was a big factor in in Nashville leading in shots in the first two games. Um, probably even the first three games, including that Inter-Miami game where Miami was kind of playing the role that we saw Nashville play this weekend. They were just trying to hold on and get the point. And I think that that's why RSL had a pretty solid shooting outing against Nashville because NSC was essentially playing like they were up a single goal and they didn't want to concede another goal. They were going to give up a ton of shots as long as they weren't from good positions. You would prefer them not to do that, but they may have not have gotten any result if they hadn't been kind of packing it in like that. So there are two sides of the coin where it certainly is the less exciting version of playing. It certainly is something that is going to see them fail to score more often than not, unless they can hit on an incredible counter, but it is the way that they kind of guarantee themselves those single point there. Next up for Nashville, Austin FC. They're known as Verde and they've left two opponents in their first three matches. Tim dazed and confused. Hey, all right, all right, all right. Nashville keeps getting older, and these expansion teams just stay the same age. (laughs) They've lost two straight, though, and they're in the midst of an eight-game road trip to start the season. If you didn't get the reference, by the way, Matthew McConaughey is the chief culture officer of Austin FC. I wanted to explain the random uh, McConaughey references. Um, Seven of those first eight matches, though, that they're starting out on the road playing are against playoff teams from a year ago. So not an easy stretch for Austin as they're waiting for that new stadium to get completed. And I think they're sending incentives to the construction crews to get it done as quickly as possible so they can finally get in there. Tim, when it comes to the style of expansion build, I think Austin, it's fair to say, is a club that much more closely resembles what Nashville did a year ago than what Miami attempted to do. Yeah, and they did a lot of the same sort of things. You hire a general manager 
manager or sporting director for Austin FC in Claudio Reyna, who has built a club before. You saw Nashville do that with Mike Jacobs, not a guy who had built an MLS club, but had built a USL club for Sporting Kansas City, kind of has that sort of experience. And Claudio Reyna also knows what to value uh, when you maybe aren't spending as much as other teams, when you aren't necessarily as cohesive as other teams because you haven't been around as long. Claudio knows exactly what you need to do to kind of at least tread water. And I think we saw Mike do that at the beginning of last year and then add talent midseason, and, and it really helped take this team over the top. I think Austin is doing much more of that than than going out and sign, signing various Higuain brothers, going out and signing as many DPs as he can find uh, for whatever prices it is. And it is, as you mentioned, kind of that not necessarily a money ball approach, but knowing what works in this league and executing on it rather than worrying about kind of finding those big names. The transaction to me that reminds me most of what Nashville did was going out and getting Alex Ring, you know, a central midfielder who's dependable, who's going to be part of your backbone, who's going to provide leadership moving forward and stability going back. I think uh, certainly they can be applauded for what they're trying to build and the way they're trying to do it. And, and maybe it's a bit of a credit to Nashville. You know, Claudio Reyna knows what he's doing, but I can't believe that he wasn't also looking a bit at what Mike Jacobs did a year ago and following at least pieces of that as a as a template for building something. Well, let's get into that Austin match. And rather than having you and I discuss it for the next 15 minutes, let's bring in, oh, you know, maybe the most recognizable name in American soccer. Alexi Lalas, commentator, analyst on Fox, but of course you know him from so many other places, including the 1994 World Cup. Let's bring him in now and have a conversation about Nashville SC versus Austin, about what it means to be an American soccer organization, and what is authenticity in his view, and again, many other topics. Here's our interview with Alexi Lalas. Well, today on the show, we welcome the most recognizable person in American men's soccer. He earned 96 caps for the U.S. men's national team, including playing every minute of the 1994 World Cup. He also has two Olympics on his resume and played seven seasons in MLS, including the inaugural campaign, and was the first American to play in Serie A. He was president of the LA Galaxy when the club signed David Beckham, and today he's a lead studio and game analyst for Fox Sports. We are thrilled to welcome Alexi Lalas to the club and country podcast. Alexi, thank you for spending time with us today. And we'll start by asking you the question that you like to ask on Twitter. What are you yelling about today? <laughs> uh, well, first off, great introduction. Thank you for reading it absolutely perfectly the way I wrote it. Uh, it just makes me sound old. Uh, it means I've been around for a while and I've seen uh, you know the good, bad, and the ugly and everything in between when it comes to what goes on in American soccer on and off the field. Yeah, I get up each morning and, and I wonder, and I'm actually, I'm about to do my podcast after this. And I think one of the questions we have is, is why I ask that question about what we are yelling mm. about. I mean, look, first off, when it comes to, to Twitter and social media, for that matter, it, it is designed to be a megaphone, right? And so it's designed to have people scream and yell and give people a platform to scream and yell. And, and it's what we do. And maybe in the soccer world, we do it even more because we have to scream and yell louder in order to cut through a lot of the clutter, uh, the clutter out there. What am I yelling about? I mean, look, when it comes to Major League Soccer, uh, I'm yelling in a good way because yelling can be a good thing. I mean, sure. I yell joy all the time. Um, but I'm yelling about just a, an incredible season so far. If you look at you know, the narratives that are emerging, I mean, just purely from the soccer perspective, it seems like every single, you know, uh, day or couple of days of games that we have, there are some incredible goals that are being scored. So that's fun uh, that, with that's going on. And then, you know, from a, a you, know, um, you know, off the field perspective, we got the Columbus crew uh, rebrand or and how good or bad that was. Obviously, we've just been through the Super League stuff uh, over there in, uh, in Europe, which uh, uh, obviously resonated over here for a number of different reasons. And then, just, you know, I, I, I think you mentioned, you know, the general Americanness or lack of Americanness that is our American sport. And what I've found, whether it's you guys or anybody else out there or any of your listeners, we take this personally. Um, there is ownership. I know sometimes we can go over the line at different times, but um, I'd rather have people uh, involved in the American soccer community that do take it personally and they do have a passion for it, mm -hmm. that it is emotional. Um, and while we can take what we do seriously, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Alexi, we're going to take it right into the uh, the main event here. You were in the house last year for the inaugural uh, NSC game in Major League Soccer. What was that atmosphere like? And as things begin to hopefully creep back towards normal a little bit, no capacity restrictions at Nissan Stadium starting this weekend, for example. 
What do you expect out of the Nashville fan base, whether it's this year or in the long term? So, you know, last year, I mean, it was one of the last games we did. And so it was one of my last and lasting memories of that communal type of experience. And I've opened so many different places and, and they're new markets in terms of MLS, but it doesn't mean they're new markets in terms of soccer. And that's what's always interesting to me is how much of that past is adhered to um, or how much and how much of that that new fan base that you are created um, with this new tent comes into that tent. And so, you know, I looked around and I saw obviously a, you know, a history and a robust type of soccer presence when it came to Nashville. But I also saw a lot of people just kind of wandering and saying, what the hell is this soccer thing all about? And being really jacked up and excited, even though the, the, the team lost, there was an excitement that this is a very different type of experience, uh, not just the, the, the sport that you were seeing on the field, but everything that goes on around and whether it's the singing or it's the colors or it's, um, you know, the culture, the traditions that either have existed or are created and you have the ability to create. That's what's awesome for me. And so while it's 60,000 people, it's, it's really about the long term and how many of those people become not just Nashville fans, but soccer fans. And it becomes part of their lifestyle and becomes part of their palette that they look at as any other sport, even though they might not have grown up with it. That's all what's always wonderful for me. I saw that on that night. It has continued on. This is a team that has become instantly competitive in this league. And to be fair, it's a league that bends over backwards to make you competitive, but it doesn't always happen like that. So it's been great. I think it's been a wonderful addition to not just Major League Soccer, but to the American soccer landscape out there. You alluded to uh, some of the you know, kind of the game day traditions and things like that. And we see a couple of guitars behind you. I think everybody knows that you're yep. a, a musician in addition to a soccer guy. Do, does the music oriented stuff that Nashville SC did for its game day ritual then and they, and they continue to do things like uh, having the opening guitar riff, um, cutting a record with the highlights of for the man of the match. Do those sorts of things uh, feel forced to you or do they feel kind of appropriate through the lens of your red, white and blue colored glasses? Oh, my goodness. I, 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 I if you don't lean into the music part of it, I think you're doing a, a disservice to the community. And I think you're being dumb in terms of business. So I, I'm 100% for it. And look, I know, that, you know, there is this, this cringy type of uh, minority that looks at stuff that's being created, but you have to push things along. You have to judge things, yes, but you have to push things along and make things. I mean, and yes, I want it, I want it to have an organic element to it, but it doesn't mean that you can't steer people in the right direction. And music and Nashville, they go hand in hand. And it, I, I get jealous every time I see the, the uh, whoever the artist is. I mean, the other day it was uh, John Oates uh, from, from Hall & Oates. I was so jealous because I'm a huge, <laughs> huge fan. He's just a wonderful writer and, uh, you know, a, a legend, basically, in the way that I look at it. And so, you know, having that musical aspect to your team that's kicking a soccer ball, I, I think it just makes perfect sense. So I'm, I'm all for it. You know, at times it might be forced here or there, and maybe you pull back a little bit here, here or there, but... I mean, there's a reason why people go to your city. And I know it's not all about music. It's about a, a lot of different things. But first and foremost, it's because it's a cool city. People love to have fun in your city. And a lot of that revolves around the music industry. And that's a, that's a good thing. I think that that's something that a lot of other markets would love to have this kind of touchstone to, uh, to tap into on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis. Alexi, one person's view of what is necessary to move a brand forward is another person's view of, of ruining what makes a, a club or a brand truly authentic. So I want to know, like, how do you define authenticity in American soccer? We've talked about, you know, Columbus Crew slash now Columbus SC. There was a right. fight over El Trafico last year with LAFC saying, no, we want to be hyper authentic to the game. And Galaxy saying, we want to be authentic to our, our fans, our supporters who named that. How, in your view, do you clubs balance having a consistent identity that respects their history, respects the supporters who have been along for the ride with uh, pursuing global eyeballs and dollars and doing some of the things you have to do to streamline and, and be more appealing to a quote, global audience. Well, I think it's first off recognizing and respecting the fact that this is a unique type of venture. Um, and unlike anything else, when it comes to our sporting landscape, our American sporting landscape in that the inevitable compare and contrast with everywhere around the world is going to happen. And that doesn't happen with the other sports. Let's be honest. And I'm not saying that the other sports aren't played around the world, but nobody is looking to others to guide them, uh, either in terms of the now or, or certainly in terms of the uh, history. And so there's this incredible balance that goes on. And at times it's out of whack. At times it isn't with recognizing that we want to be 
for lack of a better word, we want to we want to have Americanness in what we do and be proud and respect the fact that there is an American soccer culture that is different, unique, discerning, um, incredibly passionate. I think incredibly educated, maybe more so than a lot of uh, the uh, communities out there. But we are also playing a game that that is viewed and obviously played all over the world. And so that international aspect and that global aspect of it that I think it attracted me to the game at a young age, um, we, we, we have to respect that in what we do. And at times I think we go too far and at times I think that there is a, there is a good balance. I'm, I'm really of the opinion that, that we need to stop apologizing for what we aren't or what we, we think we aren't when it mm-hmm. comes to our game, both on and off the field, okay? We are going to create an American version of the game. It doesn't mean we're going to bastardize it, all right? We might, we may evolve it. And a lot of times we end up are being the guinea pigs and a lot of people come, come later in the things that we do, but we shouldn't apologize for that. I talk all, all, all the time about the inferiority complex that we have, and it's starting to die out with the, with the generations that are coming about and that, um, that insecurity that we have when it comes to who we are as a soccer playing nation, who we are on the field, who we are off the field. But I, I want to lean into it. And I, I hope people lean into it. I hope people are, are loud and proud in the way that we lean into it and stand up for it. Just because you call it soccer, just because you grew up in the United States, just because you were around when we were doing 35 yard shootouts doesn't make <laughs> you any less credible any less genuine, any less authentic, any less informed when it comes about talking the game or loving the game or having passion for the game. Let's uh, lean right into this weekend's game at 8 p.m. Central Time on FS1. You've already seen Austin FC a couple times on, on Fox Networks. They played on FS1 and Fox once each so far. What have you seen out of the team that, that Claudio Reyna and Josh Wolf have built and how they're playing early in the season and how it maybe compares to what Nashville did last year? I think Nashville and a team like Austin recognize that you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Yes, you want to do things a little bit differently and make it unique and, and your own. But one of the things that expansion teams have uh, as, as there's more and more teams is this incredible um, history and these incredible template and uh, you know best case types of scenarios and best practices out there that they can utilize. And whether it's the actual you know, um, the, the actual things that have been done or the people that have done them, all these teams coming in the league, if they're not doing that, then they're doing something wrong. And because uh, because you can avoid mistakes and you can in this league, which bends over backwards to immediately enable you to be competitive in the league. I'm not saying great. I'm not saying elite, but at least be competitive in the way that we that we go about with the rules and regulations. If you are ignoring the inherent knowledge that is out there and the experience uh, that has come uh, over the years with so many people having gone through this, um, then, like I said, I don't think you're doing your job. And I'm not saying that it's that, it, that it's apples, you know, to apples all the time. Different markets are different. And it's fun for us from the outside to tell people how to spend their money and how to do things in market. It's very different on the ground. But there is a lot of information out there where you can avoid some of the the mistakes and the missteps that have happened along the way. And if you are either too dumb to access that information or you are, and in certain cases, this is happening, actively going the opposite direction, I think you put yourself behind the eight ball. There are a lot of different ways to to build on those best practices and build a club. And certainly Nashville and Miami took very different paths last year. And ultimately it resulted in Nashville ousting Miami from the playoffs 3-0. And, and that night you tweeted uh, that MLS teams that are big spenders and fail are more important to the growth of the league than teams that are frugal and succeed. Now you clarified later that was not a shot at Nashville at all. It was more praising what Miami was, was seeking to do. But in your view, how is that approach, a heavy payroll, an ambitious plan that maybe isn't quite as calculated but wants to bring in big names, how is that better for American soccer growth than what maybe Nashville is doing, which is a more guerrilla-style calculated build that suited maybe their market a little better? Sure. I mean, I, I think what I was saying was these, you know, these teams, and ultimately it comes down to individuals, that do want to spend more money. Because inevitably, it doesn't matter where you are, when I ask the question, how are we going to be more competitive? In that inevitable compare and contrast that we're talking about with the rest of the world, how do we make up that ground? Okay, with the recognition that we don't necessarily have the history that other countries and cultures have. Inevitably, it comes back to spending more money and we equate spending more money with credibility. Now, you got to spend it smart. But I don't ever I was on the air last night. We were doing the Cincinnati game and 
I, I was talking about Cincinnati, and I don't want, ever want to come across uh, or you know uh, yell, if you will, <laughs> about people spending money and deter them from spending money. I want them to spend smart money, but I want and I will give the benefit of the doubt to those that are going out there and are spending money. And when an inner Miami says we're going to spend money and we're going to spend a lot of money, that's a good thing because yes, you are you are hedging your bets, but at least you, from an ambitious uh, ambition perspective, you are doing the things that are going to possibly enable you compete with whether it's uh, League MX or whether it's uh, teams and leagues around the world. And that's a, you know, that's a good thing. There are certainly different philosophies and there's certainly different markets that are going to go about it differently. But it doesn't matter how much or little money you're spending, you still got to spend smart. And you have to have the people that have an understanding of how to use that money. But yes, I am going to champion those that want to spend more money. And this is, this gets into a much bigger conversation, but MLS, we all know, is a single entity and it's the collective. And you're only as good as your weakest link. All that kind of stuff is, is important. But there are owners out there that want to spend more and they want to be given the opportunity to spend more. And there are other owners that don't want that. And it's is this is that collective business strategy that you know goes this way and, and, and that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. But I would like to see at some point some of those owners that do want to stretch their legs and do want to spend more be given that opportunity with the understanding that if and when that happens, that disparity and that distance might increase between the haves and the have nots. And one of the things that I love about major league soccer is the parody, but it is manufactured in terms of this parody or as the league would want us to call it competitive balance. <laughs> from, from growing the league to kind of growing the game more generally in this country, you are a, a working ASO ref. You tweet about it regularly yep. on social media. What kind of inspired you to do that? What What do you see as the responsibility of giving back to the game? I I think your brother serves on the board of Soccer's Without Borders and stuff like that too. What I guess is instilled in you guys and why it's so important to be a part of helping grow the game? Well, I mean, I I am certainly no saint, uh, and this is not an altruistic type of uh, uh, of decision. Actually, no, nobody who loves rat can be a saint. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was much more. Um, about my my job and getting a different perspective on it and it, and it you know i i talk about referees almost on a daily basis in the decisions that we make and obviously in the var world that we're in and, and, and all the laws of the game and everything and i see a lot of people that are in my profession and even even colleagues that have a rudimentary understanding of what the laws are but when you get down to it uh, having an understanding i think is part of your job and it's one thing just to to read the laws and and to understand the laws it's another thing actually to to you know partake in a game and to and to uh, put them from a practical perspective into into use and so i i i looked at it as i'm becoming better at doing my job on television by being by involving myself in in being a referee and look I do it for AYSO and I, I love the AYSO idea and in this day of of hyper um, you know youth sports which is which is great mm -hmm. I'm not knocking it or anything like that I just love the AYSO uh, philosophy and ultimately it's about volunteering and you can volunteer as a coach you can volunteer as an administrator you can volunteer in in many different ways and you can volunteer as a referee and we actually have a uh, a need, not just in AYSO, in, in youth soccer in general, for more for more people to referee. I actually refereed when I was a kid, and I don't think we have enough kids. And and maybe you know the the fear of being yelled at or being wrong in a public setting uh, deters them. And I, I I get that, but I think we really need to encourage kids to to referee more because I think first off it's fun, uh, second off it gives you responsibility, and third off from a soccer perspective I think it gives you a really unique perspective on a game that we all know and love and we can use as many different perspectives and I certainly can uh, certainly uh, from a practical standpoint of doing my job. Well Lexi thank you for spending time with us today as we close out one final question for you what are you looking for from this Nashville Austin match coming up this weekend do you have any bold predictions or things that maybe in the first 15 or 20 minutes will help you define how this match is going to go? So look, uh, you know, your, your team, and I, and I was looking uh, back at the results here, and in one way you can say, ah, not, not great results, but I look at them and, okay, the Cincinnati one was your first game of the year, and you shouldn't lose to Cincinnati. Nobody should lose to Cincinnati, let's be honest with you, okay? <laughs> um, and you didn't lose, so at least you came back. Uh, you know, Montreal is the surprise of the year so far uh, when it comes to how good they are. Um, you know, Inter-Miami, okay, I think they're better this year. Mm -hmm. uh, great re result against New England. Uh, and then you go on the road to, uh, to, to RSL. So I think the results have been fine. I think that this team 
is still, in, in my view, one of those middle mid-level types of teams, which is which is fine. But I, I I wonder how they get, you know, for example, last year we saw Minnesota United kind of take a step up, and so. What, what is it? What does Nashville look like when they take that next step up? And maybe it, it coincides with the with the stadium. I, and not to get too much in the business of it, I, I, I get all of that. Mm-hmm. But maybe it coincides coincides with that. So I mean, if I look at the game uh, at the game this weekend, you should beat Austin. This is an expansion team. This is a team that's in the midst of that you know, that moment when you're on the road. By the way, Nashville might be you know in the same boat a year from now when they are on the road possibly preparing for their stadium depending on how it goes but either way it's gonna be great because you you know you're getting a new stadium which is which is wonderful austin is going to be you should beat them given who you are right now but i'm just really interested from a big long-term perspective how does this nashville team kind of take that next step up where we start looking them in at, at the way that we looked at at least minnesota at the end of last year or the way that we look at Columbus uh, right now, in that just because you're a smaller market or you're not doing big, bold, crazy things that's making me scream and yell, doesn't mean you can't be a great team. But how you become that great team uh, and and use your, your money smartly, I'm just interested to see if and when that happens for Nashville. Should be a fun match, and you can catch it on FS1 Sunday night, 8 p.m. Alexi, you've now been in the World Cup, you played in the Olympics, and you've been on the Club and Country podcast. One of these things is not like the other. Big three. But the big three. <laughs> thank you well, for no, your listen, I, time. I, uh, I, I thank you for having me on, and I thank you, as, as I often do, uh, you know, those of us that kick the ball get a tremendous amount of credit out there for, for where we are. Like I said, I'm an old person, but it warms the cockles of my old red-headed heart to see so many uh, people that are being involved in the game. Uh, and I'm not just talking about kicking the ball. I'm talking about whether it's here, you do here doing a podcast or the supporters culture that has arisen, um, you know, the, the way that we think about it, as I said, in, in oftentimes in very, very different ways. And so thank you uh, for everything that you are doing on a continual basis to, to spread the gospel. Uh, and whether it's locally, whether it's nationally, whether it's internationally, we are growing uh, and we are a growing family. And that tent that I talked about at the beginning, there's more and more people coming in. But you know, you got to be out there screaming and yelling at different times. And you have to be, uh, you know, like I said, take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. I think you guys do that. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you are doing uh, to promote your team and to promote the sport. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're heading in a, a much more positive direction where we can get back in those communal type of uh, atmospheres like I, like I remember from uh, over a year ago. And we can scream and yell with thousands and thousands of people and, uh, and cheer our team and cheer our sport on. Can't wait. The next time you're in Nashville for that purpose, beers are on us. Thanks, Alexi. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. So, Tim, Alexi Lawless is known as being an outspoken voice on behalf of American soccer and in favor of his opinions. I found him in this conversation, though, to be very measured, well-reasoned and thoughtful and really, really enjoyed the chat with him. Yeah, I think he has been and remains one of the most interesting guys in the sport. Not Even though he doesn't have the shoulder-length red hair anymore, where I think we first remember him from the cover of Sports Illustrated for Kids back in the, in the early 90s. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you know, love him or hate him, and I think he'll readily admit that most people, at least in the social media world, <laughs> fall into the latter camp. He has a level and, and, and an angle of insight that you won't find in many other places. He's a smart guy. Uh, he's very willing to let people know that he's a smart guy. I, I think he, he doesn't try to hide that and it can rub people the wrong way. But uh, his insight is always very appreciated. And I think people kind of separate the character from the from the insight and it gets a little bit more a, a little bit more. You, you appreciate the insight if you separate it from the character. Plus, he made the hottest pop punk album of 2014. Alexi's a great example of how social media can bastardize our public discourse. Uh, and he leans into it. He absolutely does. I was going to you know? say, it's, it's, he's not blameless. In, in no, he's not. Yet. But he, he uses it for what it is, right? Like he'll put out a, a, a polarizing or bold statement on social media. You have the conversation with him and there's nuance behind those thoughts. And uh, the opinion might not change, but the presentation of it certainly does. Mm-hmm. It was a, a tremendous conversation. Thanks again to Alexi. And you can hear him on Fox Sports 1 in the studio show before and after Nashville SC's match against Austin on Saturday. All right, Tim, let's move on now and embrace consensus. I think there are mixed opinions about Nashville SC's performance in Salt Lake. Happy to take home a road point. It's never a bad thing in Major League Soccer. But the way it happened, I think, might have raised some red flags for some supporters as they wondered if this was the team Nashville was going to be away from home, the team that many accused them of being all of last year and that they were for the first part of the season. So I'll ask you, are conservative road performances like Saturday's enough 
to ultimately allow Nashville SC to have a successful season? Or is it going to need at some point to be more assertive away from home? And let me say, it's not an indictment of what they did Saturday. I think the first road match and all the conditions that we've talked about, there's a reason why they played the way they did. But is that enough moving forward? Yeah, it's like you mentioned, it's hard to contextualize what a road performance like Saturday's means in the long run. They probably aren't going to spend much of a first half and then the final 20 minutes of any other game trying to hold on for a draw. In Cincinnati, they are not going to try to hold on for a draw over, (laughs) over the better part of 90 minutes. So when they take a different game plan onto the road, what happens? If it's something like they still end up drawing nearly every game, but it's a little bit more aesthetically pleasing, okay, they'll be happy. But I think Gary Smith has always been and will always be extremely pragmatic and he's going to want to do what it takes to get the road result. If that means, you know, for the final 20 minutes, sacrificing the chance at a win, he's going to do that. But I think getting the results on the road is always going to be the first priority, regardless of whether he needs those conservative tactics against a team like Real Salt Lake or probably doesn't need them against a team like Cincinnati or against a team like uh, it looks like Chicago is turning out to be this year. So as long as it's uh, dependent upon who the opponent is, there's something that's going to really work out for this team. Um, I think that's going to be okay. And we may not see a different road identity from this team until late July because they only have two more road matches and six home ones sprinkled in there. Those two road matches, they go to Atlanta United and two New York Red Bulls, two teams notorious for being extremely aggressive, especially at home. New York Red Bulls with its high press, Atlanta United, say no more. You know what they can do at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So I think I'm really curious to see how that identity unfolds, but I wonder if we're waiting until... Columbus, Toronto, New England, Miami. Man, that's a tough road stretch. (laughs) It may stay this way for a bit. Uh, Columbus, though, won MLS Cup last year, as I mentioned, after going winless in 10 away from home last year. And Nashville showed growth last year on the road. They scored two combined goals in their first eight road matches last year and then capped the season by scoring eight in their final four. They won a playoff match away from home. They took Columbus, of course, to extra time on the road. If Saturday was a foundation upon which to build, great. I'm, I'm... Fine with that. It was what it needed to be. If it's an indication of the way they want to set up for most road matches, I think they're going to mm-hmm. end up falling short of the benchmarks they've set for themselves. Um, you know, the the objectives within those larger aspirations of of stylistically being more attractive. And I think they might disappoint some people in the process and and then put themselves under pressure at home, where you know the fact that they didn't win any of those first three against teams they beat in the standings last year. Tells me there's going to be a higher sense of urgency to get the job done at home to take the pressure off the road matches. Otherwise, they're going to have no choice and they're going to have to push for three points in some of these road contests. I think one thing that we can really look at is what felt different between this game against Real Salt Lake and last year's first win on the road at FC Dallas. It was a team playing pretty much the same way. It's about whether you nick that goal. And of course, when you are intentionally making it a low trials, high variance game, you can also have that goal put on you instead of scoring it. But if Nashville manages to draw most of their games and wins a few here and there, I think that's contention for supporter shield, not just uh, holding their own to make the playoffs. All right. On to the mailbag. And uh, first couple of questions are from Steve Cavendish, the uh, co-host of lamestream sports, also on the 440 sports network, a, a writer extraordinaire. You can see his byline in places like the New York times. And he's a co-founder of the Nashville banner, which will be coming to Nashville, the Nashville media landscape in the coming months and years. And Steve asks, NSC is now six weeks away from a deadline for a decision on Yonder Cadiz's contract. Tim, have they seen enough to justify picking up the club option and signing him as a DP? So I want to reframe this question because it's one that we hear a lot. Tons of people are interested in the answer to this question. So is the null hypothesis that Cadiz's loan ends and he goes back to Portugal? Or is the null hypothesis that he stays and then the experimental hypothesis is that something needs to happen to make him depart Nashville? When he signed, Mike Jacobs was not particularly subtle that he saw Cadiz as a long-term piece for this club. That means the experimental condition is probably what would he have to do to not see the loan turn into a purchase. I'm having accounted for two goals and currently coming in fourth on the squad and expected assists per minute, although he doesn't have an assist yet. None of those have been converted. It's hard to find the major fault that would see the purchase agreement to the loan not exercised. The one caveat would be there might be situations in Portugal that make Benfica motivated to move him for a lower price than Nashville's original agreement with them was. And that might be the sort of thing that Mike Jacobs is hoping happens and so they can get him for a lower price. A global pandemic and all these things are really changing the the valuations of these guys. So if they can get him for a lower price, certainly it would change exercising the specific agreement from the loan. But 
you will see what happens there. My question uh, in response to your great points is is really similar. You know, in, what's the replacement cost for a striker that has his level of productivity and projectability? You know, if it even approaches what it's going to cost to purchase Cadiz, you purchase Cadiz because he has the time with the team. And strikers, I mean, obviously, they're extremely expensive. If you find one that can be even marginally productive and complement what you have, you know, I think the, the term DP is a loaded term. We're not talking about a Carlos Vela here. We're not talking about a, you know, a, a double-digit million-dollar purchase here. We're talking about a, a DP at a much more manageable level who can be a part of things and who can be an incredible threat, especially late in matches, which we've seen Yonder be able to do. I think Nash would like to be in the position of being able to fall back on its striker depth. It has five guys <laughs> listed up top, but Daniel Rios and Abu Danladi are currently hurt and have injury histories. Same with Don Baji. He's healthy now, but he's got a history of being hurt. So I don't think that this club has the leverage to just be able to cast aside Cadiz and say, we'll save that money and spend it elsewhere on the roster. I think he's a player they're growing to trust, and I think he has some work to do to prove that he can fully integrate tactically into what this team wants to do on the pitch. But his price and his potential, especially if that price can get a little bit lower from the initial expected term, I would agree with you. I think they suggest a permanent move is the smartest option. Maybe you just try to avoid locking yourself into a a long-term contract with him. If you have some club options you can put in, some incentives to lower your salary costs, I think it's a smart move, even if it might not be the ideal play for this club. Steve also asks, with a healthy Hani Mukhtar, who's the right forward to play in front of him? Speaking of that striker depth and all the guys Nashville has available, at least when healthy, my answer to that is I think it's a forward who's good with his feet and positions himself intelligently. I think Yonder Cadiz has been unpredictable in in both respects. Sometimes his his touch can betray him. He's not always been as strong at seamlessly putting himself where he needs to be. He can kind of separate himself from the rest of the attacking midfield, certainly, and get lost in the attack. I think Don Baji was aggressive against New England. Credit to him there, but still getting healthy, still looking for his final touch, was not very involved against RSL due to a lack of service, really, more than anything. But but the team didn't play through him like they did CJ Sapong. Uh, Daniel Rios, when healthy, offers that right kind of profile, good with his feet, smart player, but doesn't yet have the track record to be my choice. And Lottie's more of a second striker to me, more of a lightning and a thunder lightning than than putting him with, with Mukhtar. So that takes me to CJ Sapong who I think offers balance and strength to the position. He doesn't mind letting the attack play through him, which enables Hani to have a chance to combine with somebody and, and get loose inside the area. Just a comparison between him and Baji. He had 32 touches against RSL and seven aerial duels, whereas Baji had, I think, barely double-digit touches in that match. Uh, so he's strong, he can he can hold the ball up, and he can combine with Hani. Uh, completed 14 of his 20 passes inside the opposing half against Salt Lake. Again, small sample size, most of that without Mukhtar. But I think for me, Tim, my answer is CJ Sapong. We'll get the answer to this question. It is what sort of player has the characteristics that work best with Hani? And I think the characteristics that Hani really needs to succeed are first, a guy who can keep those center backs pinned back so that Hani has a little bit more space to operate in the midfield. Uh, we've seen him play in tight spaces and he's okay at it. But when he can put, turn his head around, pick out passes and find his wingers or his striker. He's much more comfortable. The other thing has to be a guy who's capable of making quick interchanging passes. Honey really likes to play one twos and get on the run and then bang a pass. Now he does that with his wingers too. But I think when you have a striker that also does that, it gives Hani more options too. The thing that's interesting is Hani doesn't really require a pure finisher. You don't need a guy who can bang home a ton of goals, which I think Daniel Rios is probably the only pure finisher on this roster. Maybe Sapong has those characteristics, but he also has the rest of the characteristics that I just talked about, which is why he was your fit for the best striker. I actually think it is ultimately Jean Dracati's. I think he has at his best the characteristics that Hani needs when Hani is at his best. We haven't seen either of them at their best this year. For Hani, that's been because of injury struggles. For Cadiz, it's been a little bit of just not kind of finding his way into the system just yet. But in the long run, if both of those guys are playing well, I think the, the DP spots are, are pretty properly distributed as, as we talk about what a loaded term that is. So I think we need to move this up into the Embrace Consensus segment because it is at least a mild hint at a disagreement. <laughs> which uh, is rare for us. First uh, time ever. Uh, I'll send these last two to you, two really good questions from a pair of Johns. John Hobenreich asks, what's the longer-term plan around central midfield? I love Brian Anunga, but there's almost certainly got to be more than that. Yeah, kind of as we've talked about how difficult it is to find a striker, it's pretty easy to find central midfielders in this league. We saw it in the way that Nashville acquired Dax and Godoy. This is a position group that you can build from within the league via trades, 
via even the free agency or expansion drafts, things like that, the, all those internal me- mechanisms. And then around the domestic soccer landscape, you can draft a guy and develop them after a couple of years. So I think the long and short of it is that if there was a worry here, NSC would have made those moves because again, they're pretty easy moves to make to shore up that position. And the fact that Mike Jacobs hasn't gone out and acquired a bunch of central midfielders. Now we'll see where some of these college guys end up filling in. Even Luke Hawkinson, who's played on the wing so far, could play that position in the long run. But right now there's pretty clearly confidence that there's a lot more, a lot more to go for Dax and Godoy. They don't really necessarily need the depth and have guys other than Anunga who are being developed to be the starter. And next question from John Mueller. What position across the league as a whole has the least depth? As you just mentioned, that central defensive midfielders can be a little easier to find. But what about the positions that, that are hard to find? And if you were to make an MLS 11, which spot would be the hardest to fill? It's a tough question because of the global nature of the sport. You could say it's striker because there are only so many DP spots to go around and you probably want to have a DP striker. But it could also definitely not be striker because if a team needs one, they can hop in the global market and say our budget is essentially however wealthy our ownership is because we are going to use that DP spot. I think for that reason, it's not striker. I think you look for high caliber attacking central midfielders because they also fall into that category where you're more likely than not going to use a designated player spot on them. But it's also tougher to properly evaluate how the skill and system fit will translate than it is for a guy whose job is to just go out and score goals. He doesn't need to connect nearly as much as a guy who's right in the middle of the pitch. There's dead money around the league that's invested in central attacking midfielders. As we've seen in the past few years, much of it is invested in Cincinnati and, and those guys who aren't producing. But it's much harder to find a guy and know before he ever kicks a ball for your team that he's going to be the right fit at that position than it is at pretty much anywhere else on the field. Good stuff. Great answers. And thanks to each of you for your questions. We got some we couldn't get to this time. We'll make sure we recycle those and and get to you here in the near future. In the meantime, though, let's hop on I-65 North, get outside of Music City and go outside in. FC Cincinnati opened TQL Stadium with a 3-2 loss to Inter-Miami. FCC went down 2-0 in the first half, then equalized only to see Gonzalo Higuain score the winner in the 85th minute. Tim, the Nashville draw remains since he's only point in its four matches as they've now surrendered a league high 13 goals. Does that make Nashville's draw with Cincinnati feel any different to you? I'm now curious how many consecutive goals is an, is a record for the, for the opposition because since he scored the first two goals of the season and then gave up, uh, I guess 12 straight before, before they <laughs> scored the two to, to force Higuain to get that game winner, but not great. Yeah, I guess in the macro, drawing with Cincinnati was always going to feel horrible. And in the micro, it was an epically fluky way to draw that game, and it didn't really reflect how dominant Nashville was in the game. Neither of those things has really changed. Of course, the more inept FCC is, and it's hard to imagine, but they look even more inept than they had the past couple of years, the more it looks like a major missed opportunity. But again, nothing has really changed there. It's just, the, I guess, the level of the frustration with not having been able to get all three points in that one. Yeah, I was hoping for Cincy's sake that they were going to build a force field into that new stadium that would help them keep balls out of the net. And unfortunately, I don't think that feature was included. A resilient performance by Cincy to tie it. They went down 2-0. Breck Shea, by the way. If you're wanting to know a trivia question, the answer to a trivia question, Breck Shea, the first ever player to score at TQL Dane Stadium. Breck and Shea. Meanwhile, both closer to home and across the pond, Leicester win FA Cup for the first time. We say closer to home because Nashville SC assistant Steve Guppy played six seasons in Leicester, and we understand he was able to watch the match live from Salt Lake City. First ever FA Cup win for Leicester. It was their only trophy they hadn't won in England. They no longer hold the record for the club with the most title appearances, never to have taken the trophy. Surely to him a special moment for the man who leads NSC's wingers. Steve Guppy will be the first to admit he bleeds blue for Leicester City, so I'm sure he was extremely ecstatic as he was watching that game unfold and seeing a couple controversial VAR calls go Leicester's way was something that was probably very uh, nerve-wracking but exciting for him. And I'm sure you and I can agree if Chelsea's on the other end of those, we don't feel too bad. I got no problems there. None whatsoever. All right, let's go to the final whistle. Tim, what content have you been taking in lately? Yeah, the American Soccer Analysis Podcast. I know I've recommended ASA's web product before. The pod hits a little bit different. It's a lot more irreverent. 
Uh, Ian Lamberson and Harrison Crow are really funny guys. They mostly are kind of riffing on on a look across the league through a statistical lens still, but it's not about the stats. It's about talking about it. It's about the jokes. Uh, the ASA podcast was completely absent last year. It's been a little bit intermittent so far this season, but uh, MLS is better for it when the ASA podcast is around, and I'm very happy to have listened to a new episode over the weekend. Giving voice to complicated metrics and trying to bring some body and life into them, I think, is something that I think we try to do and can certainly appreciate when others do it as well as those guys do. Uh, something else to watch, I think for me, it's it's the EFL playoffs. Matches Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You won't find better low-key drama in sports than than that. I say low-key. It's not low-key if you live in England. But over here, I think it's wildly underrated. You can catch all these matches on ESPN+. And there are storylines across the championship. League 1, League 2, Orlando City, Loney, Daryl DK trying to get Barnsley promoted. They lost to Swansea at home, so it's going to be that much harder. Nonetheless, a, a local tie, or at least a, a regional tie, to the championship. Sunderland Till I Live again, maybe, instead of Sunderland Till I Die in League One, Sunderland trying to get promoted. They were fighting for an automatic promotion spot and then just completely flailed toward the end of the year, uh, as they do. And so the Tennessee football I can't fan wait to me, see those episodes of the show. Oh, I know, right? Jeez, I wish they were still filming. I, I feel like it would it would feel like just a, a sequel again, right? It's just mm-hmm. what they do late. And the, the Tennessee football and, and Arsenal fan in me certainly can relate to late season failure and disappointment. Can they rewrite the script and get back up to the championship? And then how about Newport County in League Two, the Welsh team? Trying to get to the third tier for the first time since the 80s. So Newport County looking to make history and some other teams you may or may not have heard of. Forest Green Rovers getting involved. I think it's just a great way to to introduce yourself every year to clubs who are going to be playing up. At least one of them in each, each classification will be the drama, the all or nothing, especially when you consider there uh, are 130 million pounds on the line for the winner of that championship playoff at Wembley. Uh, bold predictions for Austin, Tim. Yeah, I took a closer look at Austin this week so far already. It's I'm not done writing about Real Salt Lake, but I'm already looking forward to Austin as well. And they have been an early feel-good story, the re- but the results really haven't been that impressive yet. Obviously, we're a couple weeks beyond when people were talking about them as kind of that Cinderella already, you know, just a couple games into the year. But Austin has done well against teams who look like they might be kind of bad this year. That'd be Colorado and Minnesota. And they've done really poorly against those who should be good, LAFC, Sporting Kansas City, and the Galaxy. Obviously, the Sporting Kansas City game did come after a red card. They gave up the the winner there. But Nashville does feel like it fits into the latter category, the teams that should be good this year. And I think because of that, Austin continuing this long, long road slog to begin the year, it's going to be really tough for them. And I think a two-goal Nashville victory seems pretty likely. It seems reasonable to me. I think Nashville's going to return to an aggressive approach, and I think with that may come some of the vulnerability that they showed early in matches in their their first three, at least, at home. I think both teams will score in the first half. That's my pick. From there, I, I like Nashville's chances, certainly, to, to emerge with three points. Austin have surrendered multiple goals in each of their three losses this year, and in each of those, they've given up 2.4 expected goals or more. I think they had, like, a gaudy 3.6 in one of those contests. Um, They've also, though, gotten on the score sheet within 17 minutes in two of their last three. They've shown some ambition after scoring three goals late against Colorado to then start doing that early in matches. I agree Nashville's good enough and I think should expect to get the three points in this match, but I think it's going to be an up-and-down start, and I see both teams scoring at least one goal in the first half. Tim, what's on club and country this week? All sorts of talk about Real Salt Lake. Also, the the usual suite of content talking about Nashville's players out on loan. Uh, Nick Hines scored in his debut for Austin Bold down in USL. Plenty of talk about upcoming rosters for the Nations League semifinals and finals. How will that affect Nashville? Will it affect Nashville? Looking forward to the Gold Cup. Looking forward to Copa America. Jean Dercades selected to the preliminary squad for Venezuela for that competition. I would be surprised if he was selected to the final squad, but... Definitely something to keep an eye on. It's a very exciting time of year, uh, especially if you're a fan of, of English football or, or European soccer generally. Uh, this is a time of year where you're usually a little bit more low-key, but with all the international competitions delayed from last year, and of course now that Nashville has its very own MLS team that will be competing instead of taking a break through most of, of the summer uh, as, the, as the coronavirus pandemic caused last year, it's something that's going to be a really exciting time of year. 
you're going to want to go to clubcountryusa.com. It is a place where you're going to find the most thorough coverage of Nashville SC soccer that there is, plus the boys in not gold who are wearing other kits, as Austin Bold. You mentioned Nick Hines. They're also in Panico mode down there in Austin Hey-o. with Elliot Panico, Nashville's third keeper, on loan there as well. Well, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the jams, ESPN 94.9 for the highlights, and Alexi Lawless of Fox Sports for coming and joining us on the show today. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, and follow us on Twitter. I'm at TN's West Bowling. He is at Club Country USA. And retweet this show. Thanks to the 440 Sports Network for hosting the show. And until next time, so long. So long.